Hiya and welcome to another episode of The Jewel Case with me, John Darcy. Now we had a couple of weeks off there, but I mean, come on, give me a break. I had to have a wee holiday there. I uh, got out of the country and was in London visiting friend of the podcast, Kieran Logue. And uh, we went to some nice galleries, caught up with Tate Modern after its uh, rejuvenation project. So that was all very nice, but I'm back on Northern Irish soil now and... I have a very special guest on this week's episode. He's back on Northern Irish soil too, (laughs) having been away and back and away and back. He has relocated to Berlin recently. Uh, I feel like I'm trying to do like a sort of stars in their eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Guess guess who this mystical guest uh, is going to be. Guess the guest. You know what? It's Johnny Tiernan. Johnny, how are you? Great, John. Very happy to be here. <laughs> Welcome to my house. We're recording today in my house in Lisburn. And uh, you actually grew up in Lisburn yourself too, right? Yeah, I think I spent maybe 15 years living in Lisburn, I think. Yeah. Wow. But you moved about a lot as a kid. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Well, yeah. Johnny is a DJ, a magazine creator magazine runner i guess like can you say that a magazine runner like a show runner on tv or something you could say it. publishers probably publish okay that's, that's, that's better <laughs> publisher and uh and all around i guess entrepreneur lottery winner and everything right uh, yeah <laughs> um so i thought while johnny's over in belfast he's djing um some things going to some clubs catching up with friends and i thought we'd sit down for a chat and catch up and you haven't been on the jewel case before so more reason than ever to have a good catch up yeah. are you excited i'm very excited very very <laughs> delighted to be here and also i can just say how lovely your house is Aww. the window beside you've got all this lovely foliage and trees and same in, in the back and yeah it's just lovely greenery this is a lovely room before while I was setting up the microphones, I actually took Johnny out the back and showed him how to shoot a basketball properly because he was <laughs> throwing with both hands in this sort of um you know the way some people would generally you pass a basketball to someone and they do it underhand the first thing, but okay. you were doing overhand with two hands. It was so do strange. Do you know why I was doing that? Because whenever I played curb did you ever play Kirby as a kid? Yes. Yeah, and you used to throw it with two hands and aim at the curb and mm. then catch it again. So that's that's why. So my natural throwing I've only I've never really thrown a basketball, so my natural reaction was to it was the kirby throw in wasn't it you were after and to be fair it was it was a terrible technique (laughs) for a basketball into the hoop yeah but you you got the what is it the rainbow shot arc now yeah yeah you told me that and i got got five in a row i was really proud of myself amazing i'm happy to pass on that limited knowledge that i have (sighs) thank you (laughs) (laughs) so uh, what all are you up to while you're back in belfast um, well, last night I went to, uh, usually I DJ Gigantic on a Friday, but we took July, July off this month because July is July in Belfast and things are variable. And we were, and we were due to, but we were due to do Gigantic last week, but it was just after the, the, the festive season. So, but I still had a rare Friday night off when I'm, usually I'm here, I'm DJing every Friday. Yep. I had a rare night off and then went to the new girl, the first night of girl yes. in Pavilion. Oh, I should say that actually we're recording on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, most people will hear this probably Tuesday onwards. Okay. Uh, but yeah, Friday night, we were both at that. Yes. Uh, girl, a new club night in uh, the Pavilion, yeah. organized by Marion and Claire Hall. So Venus, yeah. du- Venus Dupree. Venus Dupree. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I loved yeah. it. Great music, great setup, really lovely people, great vibe. First time I've been out socializing in Belfast, um, maybe since Christmas, I suppose, because I never have time to do it. I'm always into work and out again. And yeah, and it was wonderful. It was really, it was really great to catch up with friends and yeah, in the sure. music. I danced a lot. I had a lot of fun dancing. I saw you dancing, and you know what? Your dancing's got a lot better since you moved to Berlin. Yeah, I've developed <laughs> some moves, have I? <laughs> you have. You just look a lot more natural. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, not, look, I'm not saying you were terrible before. But but you, you yeah you look great on the dance floor now yeah definitely before it was probably a bit of a dad dancer you know or like 
uncle wedding uncle dancer. I that just was, Northern Ireland move. people are not very good at dancing. Yeah. <laughs> but you've picked it up. Thanks. There's a lot of clubs in Berlin. I think that's probably you're getting a lot. There's of There's a lot of clubs in. and there's a lot of time to dance. Yeah. Know? You were telling me earlier, and we'll, we'll get into this later. But there's a a massive club scene in Berlin. Mm. And uh, I'm not sure if that's part of the reason why you moved there, that the, the, a big cultural scene and an art scene, but mm-hmm. uh, we'll talk about that move to Berlin later. Yeah. Um, we do broadcast the jewel case on Bangor FM, FM 105 in Downpatrick and Lisburn's 98 no FM. Way. So I'd like to get your uh, take on Lisburn as a place to grow up in um, and, and also tell us sort of the story of how you ended up in Lisburn because you actually were born in Germany. Yeah, yeah. I was born in Munster in Germany. In Munster. Uh, yeah, Munster. yeah, in Munster. Uh, yeah, I lived there for eight years mm-hmm. um, and then moved to London. We were in London for two years and then Newcastle County Down for just under a year and then to Lisburn after that. So I moved here when I was just turning 11. Right. Um, yeah, 10 turning 11. Very formative here. age. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, Lisburn actually was a pretty a pretty tough place to, to grow up in because there wasn't that much to do here back in the day. There was no, famously, there was no cinema here. Yeah, there wasn't much to do, but yeah, yeah, met a really cool group of friends. Actually, one of my best friends lives on this road, and we're still we're still friends now. Oh, Alan Shane, I think we met when we were like maybe thirteen. I think just twelve, thirteen. Um, yeah, and we're still really good friends. He was over visiting me in Berlin just two and a half weeks ago. He's performing at Fusion Festival. Okay, uh, yeah. So it's it's actually funny to think. Yeah, I've got friends and lots of people I know. We're still friends all this time. It is funny that there's like a. There's there's a lot of people in Lisbon even who you don't realize are in Lisbon. Like you end up meeting them for the first time, maybe at an event, or you get to know them at things happening in Belfast, and then you eventually work out later down the line that you uh, either went to school with them in Lisbon or like cross paths with them in Lisbon yeah. along the way. Of course, there was that sort of surgeons and like bands like Mojo Fury and Ego and things coming from Lisbon mm-hmm. back when you started AU Magazine, which we'll talk about yeah, yeah. later too. But actually, I've got a good link now that we're, oh, we're oh, talking yeah, yeah, yeah. now that we're talking about Lisbon and growing up here. And it links to the, the first track I'm going to play. But oh, I got involved in, in the skateboard subculture here as a kid. So whenever I was 11, I got my first skateboard. And at Laurel Hill, before they put the fence around Laurel Hill, they've got these flat banks. So skateboarders used to come from, from all over Northern Ireland to skateboard on those flat banks. I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, if you look, there's some really cool old footage online of, uh, of, yeah, of skateboarding in these flat banks at Laurel Hill. So when I used to go past, my sister used to hang out with them. She's four years older than me. Okay. And I used to see her hanging out with these cool older kids. And I wanted to skateboard with them. So I just basically hung around until <laughs> until she let me talk to them. And I just just hung around. just basically hung around until one of them was like, do you want something? I like, yeah, I want a skateboard. And I bought this yeah, rubbish skateboard from one of them. And then, yeah, bought a nice deck. And yeah, started skateboarding. And I was like, yeah, when I was 11, I started skateboarding. These older kids, they were all you know, older teenagers. And they were all into music as well. And, you know, subcultures, it's skateboarding to subculture. Music's such an integrated part of it. And I had an older cousin called Stephen, and he was really influential on me. I think I first met him when I was eight years old, and he was really into metal music and punk music, and he was the mm-hmm. collector. He's the one that gave everybody the new music. And he got me into, like, as an eight-year-old, I was into Guns N' Roses, you know, Metallica. I grew my hair long. I got a denim jacket, covered it in Guns N' Roses patches. <laughs> Like, but got a got a leather jacket as well. I think then, I've seen an old photo of you at this stage yeah. with the long hair and all that. It's amazing. Yeah. So whenever I first moved to Lisbon in primary school, I had I had long hair. Yeah, properly long hair. And listeners, it? you wouldn't believe it because he's so clean cut now. He's got the designer stubble. He's got the off to the side hair. Yeah. Short on the sides too. This was a, a long work in progress. Like, yeah. yeah. 
so I got into this subculture. My cousin introduced me to the music and I used to give him lots of blank tapes and he would then record music onto these tapes. That's and how it was done then. Yeah, that's yeah. How it, that was the early file sharing, right? Yeah, and it killed music, right? Home taping. <laughs> it's killing music. Killing music. <laughs> it's, it's doing a really bad job of it. It's really slow, like, you know, it's the longest death ever. Yeah, so he, he would give me, I would get these tapes. So I was getting things like Fugazi, No Means No, Dead Kennedys and Nirvana. And I got Nirvana Bleach, their, their debut album. And then the older kids I was hanging around also were into these bands and Victim's Family and I became the source for the music and my cousin gave me the tapes, I passed them on and yeah, I became really good friends and part of the subculture scene and yeah, that was when I, I got turned on to Nirvana and Fugazi and that was the first, you know, that was my introduction to to real music. Wow, um, such a cool 11 year old. <laughs> and this was what, like circa 1990 or something? 1991, or? yeah, wow. 92. So I turned, yeah, I was 12 and 92 and that was when, that was my first gig I went to which was Nirvana, Teenage Fan Club, and The Breeders. That was my oh, first so show. So many people are listening, jealous that that was someone's first gig, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> jealous that you were even there in the first yeah. place, never mind that it was your first ever concert. Yeah, bless my mum for, you know, letting us go there, driving <laughs> us down in the car, you know, dropping us off at the front, and me, yeah, me and my friend Andrew Curry just jumping in and going to the show. Yeah. And so what was that like as a, as a first experience of live music? Absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, really, it's it was mind-blowing. Um there was a really defining moment for me when I was, you know, I've been moshing and jumping around like crazy and, and I was at the front and um, this older girl spotted me in the crowd and then for some reason, I don't know why, but she just grabbed me and, and kissed me. I'd never kissed a girl before, so all of a sudden, like, there's this girl randomly kissing me. I'm like, whoa, this is amazing. And then the riff to Negative Creep, like, breaks in and this is my favourite song at the time. All of a sudden, like, we get ripped apart and the whole crowd starts moshing and then the lyrics are like, that is a little girl in a girl no more. And then we never saw each other again. And I just thought, this, this is amazing. I love live gigs. I love music. This is my life now. It, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, oh, it was unreal. Oh, wow. <laughs> and at that stage, you were like, is this what all live music is like? Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> Older girl at the front of the Nirvana concert. If you're listening, Johnny Tiernan, get in touch with him. Look him up. He's living in Berlin, but I'm sure you can work it out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, true love. <laughs> Wow. So that was a touch of Nirvana's negative creep, Johnny Tiernan's first visceral live music experience. Oh, wow. So jealous of that. So you went from then, uh, I think this is probably where I saw the little, you know, Johnny Tiernan passport photo from Yonks ago. That's probably what I have in my head is that, <laughs> that early, maybe checkered shirt and like leather jacket and all that. Um, yeah. What was next then for you in your musical journey? Were you still keeping it rocking and hardcore? Well, for a good while I did. Went to loads and loads of gigs. Went to see Therapy, Rage Against the Machine, Megadeth, mm. Body Count, Sons of Ping. I went to all these, back then, all these old ages shows that were happening in the Ulster Hall. It was just phenomenal to be able to go and see those things as, as a kid. Especially Rage Against the Machine. That was up there as one of the maddest experiences. It was like right at the peak of their popularity they'd just been on the word and it was like it's that whole teenage anthem you know yeah i won't do what you tell me like <laughs> um and yeah that that was the that was the busiest i've ever seen the ulster hall it was wall to packed wall to wall and the the entire place i mean the entire place when it was killing in the name was played 
um, the whole place jumped up and down, the whole place wall to wall. Used to be you go to a gig and sometimes there'd be space around the side. You could sit and chill out and yeah. maybe, you know, like speak to somebody or have a cigarette because you could smoke indoors back then when you were a badass 14 year old child. Um, <laughs> but, but this time there was no, there was no space. It was just unreal. And then also Pantera supported Megadeth. And that was uh, in 1993. And that was, again, that was like one of the maddest. That was the first time I properly crowd surfed um, at a gig. And I didn't mean to. I didn't really want to because I'm just like the small kid. And just an older kid saw me like dancing about and he just grabbed me, threw me up in the air. (laughs) So then I'm upside down and then I get passed to the front. But as I'm going to the front, my head's forwards. So as I get to the, the crowd barrier, I'm upside down going over the crowd barrier. So all my money and I'm a kid. So I've got like my pockets are just filled with change. Then the bouncer goes to grab me and throw me out. So then I'm like, no, my money's in the floor. So the bouncer had to help me pick up all these Aww. coppers and coins. And as I'm picking it up, um, I also got the plectrum. I used plectrum from the bass player, Rex, and then also a plectrum from the guitar player, Diamond Durrell. And it was like, yeah, I got them, put them in my pockets. And I was like, yes, <laughs> best ever. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, I went through, went to these gigs and fell in love with, with live music then. And then when I was 14, that was whenever I discovered nightclubs and clubbing. And all downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, it took a different path for a while after that. And what was your first clubbing experience? And by the way, a lot of 14 year olds don't even know what clubbing is or have any notion of like even going to live music gigs. So, I mean, you're, you're way ahead of most people's age curves in terms of maybe this is just the sort of the social scene you're in right now, hanging about with your sister's mates who are skateboarders at an older age and you sort of like sneaking in everywhere. Yeah, well, that's kind of exactly how it happens. You know, when you're a young kid and you hang out with the older kids, you become used to hanging out with the older kids and uh-huh. that's your that's your your social circle. So we yeah, hung out with them, went to shows and then, you know, they started going to clubs and friends of friends started going to clubs and as a 14-year-old, when all your mates are going to clubs, then you're going to give it a go and, and try it out. I mean, my parents didn't know I was going to do this. Um, oh, so your actually, mom didn't drop you off at the club, no? No, no, it was actually really <laughs> funny. My mom's friend, Tracy was looking after me for for that weekend and I said, look, do you mind if I go out tonight? And she's like, no, that's cool, you can go. So then, yeah, I went out with my friends. Thanks, and went Tracy. Out, yeah, well, thanks, Tracy. And I went out to the nightclub to actually the art, it was the art college that was the first club I went to, which is the, you know, a legendary formative experience and legendary club night and spawned so much music and spawned, you mm. know, so many people. David um, Holmes as sort of the big key figure of that whole yeah. scene. So yeah, that, that was the that was the first the first club I went to at fourteen, and I didn't get home that night. Didn't get home till the next day. Brilliant. M- might have <laughs> you know might have had some new experiences that night, shall we say? Yeah, it's it's just it's just crazy. It, it feels like uh, now I'm, I, I assume we're only going to keep going on this path of you being at all the pivotal moments in Northern <laughs> Irish music, right? <laughs> Wait, were you at the first, the Led Zeppelin concert where they played Stairway to the Heaven for the first time? No, too? That's where it was conceived, maybe. No. <laughs> <laughs> and is there like a standout track from that era um, of sort of your first um, experiences of dance music, electronic music, that sort of four to the floor beat? Um, yeah, I suppose there's one. I'm going to play one song that really stuck out. And this because this was from from the first the first night I went to the art college. There's a few standout tracks that I could talk about. But this is the one that we had been listening to. You know, you don't you know what's going to be played at the club. You just don't know. Uh, but we'd been listening to a friend of mine, Stuart Nichols, was a DJ at the time, and he'd been buying records, and he was the older kid with the turntables. And he bought this record, Higher State of Consciousness by Josh Wink. And it was just like, unlike anything mm. we'd ever heard before, and we'd all been listening to it. And then that night at the club, there we are, and you, you know, you're dancing, you're in another world, and then you just hear this, this like acidic acid noise coming over the top, do-do, do-do-do-do-do-do. And 
I mean, it really it destroyed clubs. It was unreal. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never experienced anything like it. A whole, you know, the whole club screaming at the same time. Belfast has this, this you know, um, reputation for for being really visceral. And yeah. especially at this time, I mean, people have talked about this a lot, but because obviously that situation, you know, the troubles were still going at that point And, you know, it was this kind of, I don't know, this different space where nothing really mattered and everybody was together yeah. and so on. Um, and actually there are DJs like, I think it's Derek May, for example, who's a famous Detroit techno DJ. He played the art college and he was interviewed in a magazine once and he was asked, he said like, what's the best gig you've ever played? And he said at the art college in Belfast, he said, all you had to do was breathe and people went crazy. And it was just, <laughs> you know, it was that kind of atmosphere where people were so hungry and so starved of anything that when this mm. came along, it was, you know, you know, people really went for it. Definitely. There's no blasé attitude no. in Belfast whatsoever. I mean, you go to maybe to clubs and other places and uh, there's, you know, like cool people who are just so used to uh, things. Belfast people go, obviously, well, not Belfast people, Northern Irish people, yeah. because uh, we just go mad. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's that famous, now famous video of Space Dimension Controller playing at AVA Festival and he drops in one of those classic 90s dance anthems that is, you know, I really associate with going to fairgrounds <laughs> and getting on the rides yeah. and they play, you know, this really yeah. Yeah, 90s dance music and he just drops that. I forget what, what was Isla, the track? Isla. Isla. And, Isla. Uh, it, it, everyone is just going mad and singing along and I think that's gone viral and that's that's sort of part of the testament of how AVA Festival mm-hmm. has now built the re- reputation from all the dance critics yeah. you know like people are writing about it on all the blogs yeah. saying go to AVA it's amazing the crowd's special yeah. and it's because of just that reaction that yeah. they give yeah and it's, 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 it was exactly that at the time that was and this yeah this song represented it in fact no, the first time I went to the club and they played that song and it was mind blowing. Like, I mean, literally like as a 14 year old in a club, it blew my mind. And then, then we went there back again the next month and it was Ian McCready. He's a very well-known Belfast DJ. It was his night. And this doesn't usually happen, right? Where, you know, the music doesn't stop. The music keeps going. But this night when he was going to play this record, he stopped the music and he like took, you know, got a microphone. He's like, this song is going to blow your head off. Like this song, this <laughs> this is going to blow your head off. And like, he just stops the music and announces to a club that this is going to be it. And then he plays the track and then, yeah, it's, That's hilarious. It, it blew everybody's head off. Well, yeah. here, listeners, this is going to blow your head off. sounds so minimal now it, it, well, at, the, at the moment it is but it's like hearing it still sends a little shiver down my spine I was actually at a big festival in um, just outside Berlin called Fusion Festival best festival I've ever been to and it was their 20th year anniversary it's very anarchistic and DIY but also very large there's no advertising in it or anything like that and it's, okay. but Mode Selector were playing the headline set on the main stage and as it was a 20th year anniversary set they yeah they played some classics and they played this song and yeah, it was still as crazy as 20 years ago. Did that just bring you right back? Yeah, like right back. But before this, they'd played another track called Res by Underworld, um, which is a 10 minute anthem. But I was sitting on a grass bank, like by myself, like relaxing, rolling a cigarette or something. And then I heard the, the opening notes of Res and I was like, oh my God. 
what? Like literally jumped up, <laughs> shouted, and then run off. And anybody around me must have looked and was like, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> um, yeah, and then went and danced for the full 10 minutes. And then they played this as well. They played Jeff Mills, The Bells. They played like a full-on classic set yeah and it was it just took took me right back so the next time i see someone just giving it all at a music festival i'm just gonna think you know what they probably have a real emotional connection with the song and uh, fair play to them work away yeah yeah go for it go for it but yeah when this came out like nothing sounded like it now it, you know it's been so well known that it almost sounds cliched you know mm. but when this first came out what 1994 i think it it's just nothing else sounded like it. Yeah, it's just totally individual. Yeah, and the build up, like it's 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 on a bit, but the build up and it's just wild. Did they even know what this was? Like, did they call us a break at this stage? Probably, yeah. Here's the breakdown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's what gets me about modern EDM and producers, that everything's so categorized by micro genre and there's this like necessity of a break and all this yeah. just the terminology of everything seems so forced and dance music by colours, whereas this was seems totally organic at the time. Oh, you can feel it. Yeah. <laughs> It's so simple, he's just changing the filter on his synth. Yeah. Dude, it literally is someone fiddling about with the knobs, right? Yeah, I mean, that is, well, that is dance music, isn't it? <laughs> There is something intrinsically alive about that sound. Mm. Something like alive about that sense, the way he's uh, fiddling about with the filter that gives it that changing, you could say like a formant sound. It's sort of the sound that happens when we change the shape of our mouth. Mm. And it, it's really alive. It's, 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 it's so synthetic, but it's so alive at the same time. That's what really interests me about electronic music, with the, the, the organic nature of it. Um, when it's it's not just like machine like it can mm. be if you want it to be but um, but there's there's some sort of sentience in it like there's an animal making that sound or something like that um, actually interesting um, musician making sounds with uh, lots of chaotic um, ways of producing synthesized sounds not like playing synthesizers through a keyboard but using all these random processes to make sounds called Tristan Clutterbuck mm-hmm. uh, he's based uh, in Belfast at the minute and he's actually taking part in this tuning the walls series of shows at P Squared Gallery coming up in August. So uh, check out Tristan Clutterbuck. I'm going to have him on the jewel case next week, I think. I hope, fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, Johnny, what then, now that you've been expanded and you, you've seen guys with guitars playing and girls with guitars playing, then you've seen people just playing songs out at clubs. Then then what happened? You're like, your, your mind's been blown. What then made you think, I, I'm going to do this? I'm going to as a, as a teenager, because I think you got into DJing really early. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just started going to the art college, um, like, every month at least. 
I did that for for two years and was just totally inspired by by DJing. And I had some friends who were DJs, and I really loved it. And I wanted to learn how to do it. And then uh, a friend of mine um, had a pair of old belt drive turntables. It's named David Condy. I'm actually playing his wedding next year. I just got booked for that recently. So that's quite fun. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Full circle. Uh, yeah. Um, and I had an old weights gym and I did a swap with him. I swapped him my belt drive turntables for my weights gym. So I started messing around with these belt drive turntables and this dodgy mixer. And then, um, but you can't really use that. You know, they're just not good to learn how to DJ on. Mm-hmm. So whenever I was 16. Um, and then I really wanted to get a set of techniques so I could learn how to DJ properly and be a proper DJ. Uh and then it was that Christmas, I was, yeah, whenever I was 16 that, and then I was turning 17, yeah, that, that Christmas was coming up. My parents, uh, on a personal level, they were actually getting divorced and they um, were feeling, I think, a little bit guilty. And they asked me, is there anything you would, you know, you'd ever want for Christmas? And I was like, the only thing I really wanted at that time, the only thing I really wanted was, was a pair of turntables, a pair of Technics 1210. This is all I wanted in my life. And then a friend of mine, Colin Milne, uh, his dad worked for Panasonic. So we were able to get a deal on a pair of uh, Technics turntables through that. Brilliant. And I got them for Christmas. But at that time, um, my, yeah, we couldn't afford a mixer. So I didn't have a mixer and I needed records and everything. And then, um, yeah, I did a I did a random one-off ticket for the lottery. I did the same lottery numbers every week, the same numbers. As a teenager, you did the lottery? Yeah, yeah, when it just came in. Oh, right. Oh, I was 16. Oh, this was when the National Lottery had just yeah. sort of done the big ad. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that just sort of makes sense. Yeah. So, um, and I did the same numbers every week. And yeah. uh, my mum always put them on for me. And then I had a few, was going to be having a few friends around later. And I said to my friend Gary here, you know, would you remind me to put the lottery on later? Um, and then later on, he reminded me. But by this stage, my mum had already put the lottery on. So I was like, I'll do another ticket. So I picked um, dates that meant something to me that were personal friends' birthdays and, and things like that. And then when we were back in my house later on in this one-off ticket, I was sitting watching the lottery and the first five numbers that dropped down were, were these five random numbers that I just picked in this one-off ticket. So, and this was at a time whenever I had no money, I had no job, I had nothing. I'd, I'd actually left school to join a place called Quest, which got taken over the day I started. And by the end of my first week, it went into liquidation, ceased to exist, and that was over. So I left school in November to join this. And I started on the 11th, turned 17 on the 13th, and on the 15th, it stopped. That was the end of it. Um, so then I had no, I had nothing. I had no, yeah, nothing. And then, yeah. And then, and then you had your techniques. Yeah. I, had my, I was getting my techniques. Yeah. And then I, and then, yeah, I got these five numbers in the lottery won like a thousand, 128 pounds. It meant that I was able to buy a mixer. It was able to buy Christmas presents for my family, which was very important. And then I also then, um, I kept the money and I went out every few weeks and I went to Dr. Roberts in Belfast and I started buying records right. and that's how I started DJ. And I, I took that money and I went out. Every few weeks I went to the art college, I heard what they were playing, I did my research overnight and I started buying, buying the records. And yeah, and when I was 17 then, I got my first guest DJ slot when I was 17 at, at Vigos. Um, a friend of mine, Paul McGrail, um, and another Paul, they were doing a night called Paul's Boutique and I got invited as the, as the guest DJ. And that was my first DJ slot when I was 17. And then when I was 18, I, I, I got my first residency. I became a resident DJ. You're going to love this because I just realized we have something in common uh-huh. that we both have done our first DJ slots underage at Vico's. No way! <laughs> <laughs> uh, whenever I was 17 or 16, 17, 16, um, my friend was actually working in um, uh, in Vico's as sort of like tending bar or like working waiter and or actually doing the door and nightclubs and things. And uh, he persuaded the boss... Uh, to just let me DJ on on CDs because they had a CD DJ at that stage yeah. and 
I had just burnt loads of CDs of tunes. They didn't know like anything about clubbing or anything. Like I was sort of doing an indie sort of the like this was sort of uh, I guess Libertine Strokes era NME sort mm-hmm. of era um, for me. And so I was just playing all that sort of thing. So mine was on the, the sweaty halls of Vico's as well. Nice. <laughs> Although I, I, I imagine that in your day, that like Vico's was banging in Belfast back then. Yeah, it was completely insane. I mean, it seemed really normal at the time to be an 18-year-old kid playing to a room full of people completely off their faces with sweat dripping off the walls and playing the most banging techno. It seemed normal at the time, but on reflection, <laughs> it's probably not that normal. So on reflection. Well, the, the sweat was stri- still dripping off the walls when I was there, but I think it might have been kind of damp just at that stage. Yeah, yeah. But even how I got that gig, that was so random. Uh, I got that gig through a guy, Pete Donaldson. It's actually boring. It, the story is um, I was at tech and my then girlfriend or then friend Kelly gave me a flyer for a house party. And I was like, a flyer for a house party? And it had, you know, some stormtroopers on it. And I was like, this is crazy. And two of the guys who were with me at tech at the time looked at the flyer too. And then they're like, oh yeah, we should go to this party. A few weeks passed. Um, I was out at seeing the Australian Pink Floyd randomly in the Ulster Hall, got this ticket. And these two guys uh, that I'd seen the flyer just came in and were like, hey, Johnny, you know, um, are we going to go to this house party? So I was like, okay. Jumped in the guy's car which turned out to be he got a line of his mum's like sports BMW, went up to the house party. And in the house party, um, nobody was there yet because it was like the gig had finished at half 11. It's 12 o'clock. Everybody's at the limelight or something. Yeah. And I saw the turntables and I thought, hey, you know, could I bring a box of records and DJ here? And the, the guy was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So then I said to the guy who was driving the car and I was like, can we go to Lisburn? Because it, it was where I lived at the time and pick up a box of records. And he's like, yeah, okay. So jumped in his car. So anyway, but this guy's doing like a hundred mile an hour in this two seater BMW, like or oh no. four, uh, down the motorway. And he slows to go around a bend. And as he slows to go around the bend, the police have pulled someone over. And we just like slowly went past and like, oh my God. Anyway, if we can cut this back in. I mean, in, that could have been you guys. Yeah. And you would never have got the DJ. Never. But to cut it back in then, yeah, we went, picked up this box of records, came back to the party. And I waited around to the end of the night, like to ask the guy, can I play some tunes? And, um, and I was like, yeah, I'm a friend of Kelly. You know, she knows you, you're running the party. They were from the same area. Um, and he's like, okay. So it was like the end of the, you know, getting towards the end of the party. And I went and I played like Jeff Mills, the bells, and I played all this bang and techno and the guy was impressed. And then I started cutting in Jerry Lee Lewis, great balls of fire, um, like cutting in the start of it and be like, what's going on. And then the guy, the guy Pete was like, Hey, I'm doing this new night in Vigo's, you know, do you want to come down and play? And it's like, yeah, sure. And it was a night called Contents. And that was, yeah, when I was 18. So I went down and played it. And he's like, yeah, this is, yeah. Do you want to become a resident DJ? And that was it. That was my first residency at 18. DJed there for, for two years. And yeah, that's how I got started. And I've been DJing constantly ever since. That's that's great. And I would have just have totally fast forward because I'm sure there's like plenty of pit stops on your club trail mm. on the way. But you DJed sort of the soundtrack to my sort of student days in Lavery's yeah. in Belfast because you're a big night. And I think that's probably how most people um, know, know you as a DJ because yeah. that night got a lot of, it's, it sort of turned into prestige sort of indie club night in Belfast, uh, gigantic in the bunker in Lavery's before it became Mr. Tom's. I'm not sure what it's called. Now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's went through multiple facelifts along the way, but it had a very specific look back then. And it had a very specific feel and a very specific audience. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's fast forward to then. Um, yeah. And how, how had things changed for you along the way? Because you weren't, you weren't doing sort of the, the house or technique yeah. kind of thing then. You were 
sort of playing in indie tunes, but it was a totally different time then. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think because I, I, mean, I could never really stick to one genre. I got bored with techno because I wasn't that into drugs whenever I started DJing in Vigo. So those things are really intrinsically linked. Yeah. I mean, drugs and dance music. And I still love dance music now, but it's a, it's a different feel. But back then I stopped doing that. And then I got interested in drum and bass because it was a new style of music. And uh-huh. I started playing drum and bass. And then I got a bit bored with that. And I just felt like I couldn't stick with one genre. And then I got an opportunity to DJ in Lavery's in the back bar. And that gave me the opportunity to play whatever I wanted. Mm. And I just started playing across genres and playing across different things. And the guy, Greg, um, who was the entertainment manager at the time. Uh, uh, Greg's with a Z, right? Greg's, Greg's McCann. Um, he knew I was doing the the radio show Alternative Ulster, which I'd started at the time. And so he got me in to do a regular thing in the back bar. And then he said about they were redoing the middle bar and they wanted to, you know, to get some club nights in the middle bar. And I started doing a club night there, which started out being called EGR, Emo Garage Rock. Because <laughs> whenever this like this is like this this wave. And then I mean, you know, I, I was too like hemmed in too much. And then that got turned in. I was like, I want to do something different. So I started a night called Giant. And then they were relaunching that the middle bar with a stage and it was being rebranded as the bunker from the middle bar yeah. and they wanted to do live bands. And uh, yeah, so I then turned with Gigantic and I, G- G- with Giant. I was like, well, what's better than, than, than Giant? Like Gigantic. And I was like, okay. And then we turned it into Gigantic, did live bands and DJ'd. And yeah. yeah and yeah, and it just coincided and we were doing the magazine and it was like this whole huge wave of bands that were yeah. coming through and everything just kind of like, click together it was the club for the bands who were playing and the people who wanted to see the bands and then it kind of just all coalesced it just worked it was yeah it was that crest of a wave in the sort of resurgence of local music and yeah i did skip out sort of the radio show and the magazine along the way um but maybe we can tie it all together because yeah like we're, like we're both saying that it sort of was an anchor point that friday night for all of the people in the bands and then all of the fans of the bands yeah and then there was crossover and fans then joined bands and then bands became fans of other bands. Like yeah. that was the real men- melting pot and what made that time so special. And occasionally you're dropping in like local music as well. Yeah. Like I remember, and this is fast forwarding even more, uh, being on the dance floor with Nile Kennedy and then you dropped uh, Youngblood by his band, the Panama Kings, yeah. and he was absolutely disgusted and had to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's because I was pointing in his face at that stage, yeah. right? Um, so there, it was that atmosphere where everyone was just mingling and then it was, you know, looking for the house party after the show yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but also, yeah, that bunker, that venue, alongside, say, uh, upstairs in Antiani's, mm-hmm. the attic, as sometimes they called it. Yeah. They were, they were real important places for bands because there was... Um, there was sort of that scene of like post emo bands like Element and mm-hmm. uh, what was Stu Bell's band? Fast um, Emperors. Yeah. And sort of the, 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 that was all around sort of the front as well. page. Yeah. And then things started happening in Lavery's and there'd be new bands. And that's sort of then where we started getting to Panama mm-hmm. Kings that sort of everything all seemed to gel at that stage. Like at, like Lavery's, the bunker was one of the first places I played when I was still in school mm-hmm. and sort hmm. of my first rock gigs. Um, and I think like supporting people like Ham Sandwich here now, like, you know, actually doing like proper big festival shows and yeah. stuff. It's funny how things move in and out. I, re- I really want to play some music back then. So it's sort of bring a tear to my eye. So have we got like a choice cut that'll give, give us that gigantic Friday night feeling? Yeah, I've got one that's especially for you as well. Um, and what I was going to say was what was nice about Gigantic is the crowd was quite knowledgeable through the link with AU everybody knew good music you know music that was quite underground and you could get away with playing things because you knew the crowd everybody knew each other and you knew that they knew the you know, good music yeah 
Um, so there'd be times when you'd look and you could see a certain number of people around, you're like, okay, I'm going to play this and they're going to go crazy. <laughs> and it was always you, so and this is what I always used to play. So that's his Cologne Quartet Carousel mm-hmm. uh, from their album Well-Oiled Machine. Um, but I believe they brought it out on single even before that. And it was, you know, one of those things where, you know, a band releases like a single, maybe a couple of singles, and then eventually the song that you really love ends up on the album with loads of other songs you really love. And this was one of those songs that I would, you know, turn up at Gigantic and say to Johnny, uh, I think maybe it was a couple of times I asked for it, and maybe yeah. that's why you have an association of me loving that song. Yeah. I think even to the dying days where after you were playing like AU parties and different places, I would still go up and ask for the song after every, like no one knew it anymore sort yeah. of thing. Like I was a bit out of touch. Um, but Clone Quartet were a great band and it was really all uh, Andy Henry, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, he was sort of producer and songwriter and that album, Well Oiled Machine, is just so well written. It's like, it's really sort of baroque pop when you think about it. Mm. I'm going to go off on tangent on Clone Quartet now while Please we're on do. the subject. Um, I mean, the al- the album artwork for a start is is great. It's it's because he's a graphic designer mm-hmm. as well. It's this really interesting pre digipack sort of digipack that you had to sort of peel open. Um, handmade, handmade, mm-hmm. even better. <laughs> uh, we sound like such hipster hipster juice bags. Um, it's not actually being handmade isn't about reference to being hipster because it's actually quite complicated packaging and that was not easy to make by hand um, uh, right yeah I mean that's, <laughs> that's a feat of design ingenuity in itself I would have that album on in the car just constantly and because of sort of the ebb and flow and the changing moods on the album it's for me that's a really classic album yeah. and like a really underappreciated album of Northern Irish music maybe just because they hit a little bit early for that real buzz of around the Panama Kings mm-hmm. and so I watch it from afar when really the scene galvanized and tons more people started mm-hmm. going going to shows maybe that album just came out a little bit too early for that they actually were too soon <laughs> sort of in a way yeah um, but I don't ever remember seeing live bands at it that maybe that was sort of a different stage yeah it? that was like in the early days you know just days, just yeah. when it really started we had bands like Red Organ Serpent Sound play oh wow Fighting With Wire we had the immediate play the immediate went on uh, Connor O'Brien who is Villagers his, his yes the, the immediate we had them play as well we had Black Wire play we had some The Young Knives play we had some like good UK bands mm-hmm. um, play so it was like a yeah it was a mixture of uh, local bands and, and touring bands doing live gigs every Friday followed by DJ sets it was it was cool. So hold on, hold on. We, we, you dropped the letters AU in there earlier uh-huh. and we totally skipped out that. <laughs> <laughs> but really, you made, at a pivotal time, quite a big impact on the Northern Irish music scene by being a vessel in which people could find out about new music and also bring in like sort of music that was happening in around the UK and worldwide. 
um, the sort of thing that people go online to do now. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were doing that in print form when I was a teenager. And actually, that's how I got to know you, I think, at first. Do you remember how we first met? Yeah, I do. Was it in the Island Arts Centre? And I met you and your parents. And I think I gave you a copy of the magazine. You or did. Talk- yeah, you did. Yeah, and I got talking to you through Cahill McGee. Cahill McGee. So, so Cahill, big shout out to Cahill yeah. because <laughs> I played my first gigs in the Island Arts Centre and Cahill did sign for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to know him and chat to him and he would always give me advice on how to get better, like about songwriting, about the sound, about the guitar playing and all that sort of thing. The Island Arts Centre then just sort of had a big boon. Maybe they got more funding then. There was just more more audience for this sort of thing. And they ran this like summer festival. Mm-hmm. And what was the gig? There was, there was a festival where they'd bring in maybe one international act and then have loads of local music sort of s- s- spattered throughout yeah. a nice week-long programme. And I had went with my parents. I was still like in school, very young. And uh, you came up, Cahill must have said... Here, that guy's in the band giving him yeah. a scene, and you were still long hair, Johnny, at that stage yeah. with like snake bites or something. Yeah. Were you like pierced to the nine? No, I had a, no, I had a librette piercing, oh, right, very good, and, and another secret piercing. Oh well, I read about that in the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's when I started. I think I actually, you know what? I think we were too kind to say, but we actually had a copy before you. But we were so uh. chuffed that you come in and give us a copy. We already had one, but we didn't subscribe. We actually bought it in the shop sort of every time so yeah. that, like at least then people like the shops knew that it was worth getting in yeah. sort of so uh, I, I would get AU magazine every month and like I said it was so important at that time and I guess it you know it grew from a need mm-hmm. to cover local music because yeah. it was a big boon time um, but also covered that so ha- tell me about and tell our listeners about how that all came into being and maybe a, a little bit more about sort of the ethos and what the magazine was about for anyone who sort of missed that because yeah. There's a whole new generation of local music fans who never had AU. Well, it started out initially as a radio show. Um, it started out as an idea that I'd had. I had, whenever I was still at university, I had this idea because I thought I could do a pirate radio station. I just had this mad brainwave. And I started to think about all the people, the bands that I could play and all the musicians that I knew and DJs that I knew. And I thought I could do a radio station with specialist shows. And I had this whole idea for a radio station. And I was talking to my friend Mark Gibson about it. And I was like, he was like, well, what would your first song be? And I was like, I, I think I'd, I'd play the first song I'd play would be Alternative Ulster. Because it, it sums up what we're doing. And then I thought, well, actually, I think I think I would call the whole thing Alternative Ulster. Because mm. if you don't know the song and then, you know, grab it and change it, it's yours. You know, alter your native land. It's like, it's kind of like, it's all about making a change. It's all about, you know, getting out there and, and, and being positive and, and doing something against you know, a difficult backdrop. And I just thought, yeah, I would I would call the station Alternative Ulster. And one night I couldn't sleep, so I wrote all this on the back of a file block because I had no paper left and I wrote it down and I, I, set, I set it away and I forgot about it. And then uh, a few months later, I, I was in the town uh, having lunch with my dad and he was taking the piss out of me, really taking the mickey. He was like, oh, DJ Johnny, Johnny the DJ, who do you think you are? DJ Johnny. And I was like, stop giving me a hard time, you know? Uh, stop teasing me. And then I was walking up the street um, about a half an hour later and this girl stopped me outside Botanic Station and was like, hold on, are you Johnny the DJ? And I was like, yeah. And I'm looking around for my dad being like, wait, what? And it was this girl, Kathy, and she's like, would you write an article for my website? Um, I'm going to be launching it soon. It's going to be um, it's going to be called Alternative Ulster, and it's going to be promoting like Northern Irish and local music. And I was like, that's so weird. I had, I had the same idea for 
for a radio station that you have for a website. I was like, let's keep in touch. So then we exchanged email addresses and we kept in touch. And then a few weeks later, a friend of mine, uh, Kira Webb, she'd been telling me to look at this website, fast food, this old, like, mm-hmm. yeah. And I'd never looked at it before. And this first day, the first day I opened it up, I looked at it, there was a link in the corner and it said, do you want your music played on the radio? And because I was DJing and I'd been producing music at the time, I was like, yeah, I do. So I clicked this link. It took me to Northern Vision's website. And it was the, the first thing I saw on there, it said, um, do you have an interest in radio programming, production, engineering, or presenting? If so, we're launching a radio station. Mm. In, and it was the launch date was in two weeks. And I was like, bingo, why don't I take this idea for a radio station, condense it into a radio show, and then try and do a show on that station. Get Kathy, who's doing the website, and we'll we'll do it together. So I asked Kathy. Kathy said she was up for it. And then we got the last free time slot. There was one time slot available, 5 p.m. on a Sunday. And by a pure coincidence, these two ideas, this radio show and the website, were conceived of completely independently of each other, both inspired by a song that was written in 1978, before I was born. By a pure fluke, both of the ideas launched on the same day. So the day that we recorded the first radio show was the day that she launched the magazine. It was the 14th of March in 2002. And then this radio show that we started, which was based around the idea of playing nothing but Northern Ireland musicians and artists. And mm-hmm. it became this sort of like cult hit where we, we identified there was this need, you know, there were all these musicians and all these bands that were really appreciative of this outlet. So we started getting people on for acoustic sessions and for interviews. And it just kind of, it just snowballed. And it turned out that we were, we were fulfilling this need um, yeah, that, that people had for, for, for coverage for media and for for oxygen. And I think, I do think at the time it was because this was the, as I say, it's the first generation of people that had stuck around Northern Ireland since the troubles ended. You yeah. know, the Good Friday Agreement came through in 98. So this is the first generation of people that really had stuck around. So you had all these musicians, people making art, people making films, and it felt really like everybody was doing stuff for the first time. It felt like this really, like really special moment. And we just happened to be there doing this at that time. So we started this radio show. It was a hit. After the first year of doing the radio show, we were going to revamp the website. I had been, I'd finished my degree, the degree in psychology, decided I didn't want to get a real job. I wanted to try and find a career in media. After six months of doing the radio show, they said, no, you, you have, I was signing on. And they said, no, you can't sign on anymore. You've got a choice. You can either like find a job, um, uh, do a training scheme, or you can do the start your own business program. And I was like, okay. And I thought I'd start a radio, a record label. And then I was like, actually, no, um, we were doing this online, the, the website, we we're going to relaunch it as an online magazine. I was like, well, why not do, you know, print based version of the, of the website. Yeah. Um, it was actually like Phil Crossy said, why don't you do a, uh, the art? My first editor was like, why don't you do a print based version of the mag for the launch party that we were going to do or print based version of the website. And I was like, if I'm going to do a print based version of the website for the launch party and I'm going to do a new like web updates every month, why wouldn't I just do a magazine? I was like, mm. could just, could just do a magazine. I'm like, why don't I do a magazine? And then yeah, turned this start your own business idea into starting a magazine. And then yeah, did, did issue one, like my, like me and Kathy pulled together all the photography, all the writers, like did all the editorial and yeah, printed it in a local printers, designed it all in Photoshop. Um, folded, stapled and cut 200 copies myself, <laughs> glued badges on the front of every single one, sold them from my hands. And yeah, that's, that's how it started. I just did it all. Like I used money from DJ gigs that I've been doing in the back bar to pay mm. for the, the print run. Cause I had no, I was on the dole at the time, but I had no money. So yeah, use that money that yeah, paid for the print run and just like did it all myself. 
And then whenever that was out there, it kind of, I know it's, it's, it snowballed. All of a sudden there were, we discovered there's like lots of photographers, designers, writers, bands, people who were really hungry for this platform and really hungry for somewhere to display their work and display their talents. So when we were doing issue one, like everything coalesced and through a friend of mine, Neil Beattie, um, he, I met him when I was leaving the business, the start your own business program. And as I, when I bumped into him, uh, he's like, oh, what are you doing now, Johnny? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm doing this magazine. I showed it to him and he's like, cool. It's really good. I'm a designer. You know, would you like me to do some spreads for you? And I was like, yeah, cool. And I didn't know what a spread was. Like <laughs> I, I didn't, I just said, yeah, I was like, yeah, you want to help. But like, I didn't even know what I was doing. When you look at the first issue and you look at the credit on the magazine, it says design and layout, Johnny Tiernan. I hadn't a clue what I was doing. Like I was just doing it because I felt like it was a good idea. And I felt like, you know, the people, yeah. are, you know, it just felt like the right thing to do. I just really wanted to do it. Um, so the idea, yeah, and then, and then Neil Beattie was like, yeah, um, I'll do some spread so that I, you know, went round to his office and he said, bring around some photographs and some text. And he started working it up. And when I saw how he worked, I was like, this is mind blowing. Um, I've never seen anybody design like this before. I'd never knew this could happen. And I said, would you like to design the first issue? And he said, um, yeah, tell you what, I'll do the first three issues free of charge. And I, I was hoping you'd ask that. I'll do it cover to cover. So all of a sudden there was this like amazing designer willing to do the <laughs> magazine and my brain just went pop. I'm like, Oh my God. Um, yeah. And then, uh, then we got therapy for the first cover story. That's um, right. I remember it. Yeah. Remember the cover. I mean, they were just, they were releasing a new album that was coming out. Um, I mean, I've been a fan since I went to see them in 92 and 93, you know, like a huge fan for years. They had, a, you know, they had their record coming out. Yeah. Um, and then I saw online that Stuart Bailey had wrote their biography. So I just I was like, well, imagine if Stuart Bailey, you know, amazing journalist would be up for doing the, the interview with therapy, then that would be great. So then I asked Stuart Bailey and he said yes. And I was like, oh my God. Therapy said yes, they would do the interview. And then it was like, what if therapy played a launch party? And then we asked therapy to play the launch party and they said yes. And all of a sudden for our first issue, we got a photo shoot with them in London that Iona Bateman did and the photographs were amazing. And all of a sudden, yeah, we had this like um, fully slick, professional, amazing magazine being launched and uh, with therapy playing in the Mandela Hall. And yeah, it sold out. First gig, thousand people there. Um, and that's kind of like, and after that, it just kind of, exploded it it really a credit to you for just a seat of your pants publishing <laughs> i could bore you was that a, i'm sorry that was a really long-winded story whenever you said how did it start but <laughs> no i mean this it's so interesting to hear because you know everything has to start somewhere and everyone thinks that you know people who have you know done something that you know maybe they've had it like loads of help and um you know collaboration is really important and yeah. you've really like succinctly explained all your collaborators and how, how everyone sort of helped out and got yeah. involved. Like it doesn't just happen out of nowhere. You know, it happens through hard work and like lots of luck as well and doing the right thing at the right time with a little bit of, you know, strange intuition that we can't quite explain. Yeah. You know? um, I still have that copy wow. and probably all the subsequent ones because yeah. what was it? It started with uh, therapy and then I think maybe Snow Patrol were breaking at that stage and maybe were they the second issue? No, we, we did the thrill. We did the thrills in the second issue, but we, we but we also did a, a it was the first coverage of Snow Patrol. That's before they broke big. They were playing um, Witness. Yeah, or yeah, it was Witness at that point. Pre oxygen. Yeah, yeah pre oxygen. We yeah we did some stuff with Snow Patrol. Yeah, and then yeah, issue three was the darkness. Issue four was Iron Maiden. Issue five was the Strokes, six Dirty Sanchez, and seven was Snow Patrol. That's amazing that you remember <laughs> all of these. <laughs> it's, they're really ingrained in my brain. Um, 
Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it was like they were just. That's why I mean, I felt like when the magazine came along, it did provide this 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 platform for all these amazing creative people to yeah. to get involved. And I mean, it was just so so lucky to be able to be there at that time to to do that. It was just. What's your biggest highlight from running the magazine? Um, because the magazine did come to a close eventually. We'll, we'll talk mm-hmm. about that. But while, yeah. while, while it was like tra- transitioning and growing and it seemed to be ever growing yeah. and then you changed format at one stage. Like what, what what's your biggest highlight from running AU magazine? Alternative Ulster AU. Yeah, I mean, I think the actual launch party for issue one with therapy for me was a really unbelievable moment. My mom and her, her husband, Martin, were there for that. And I remember like, you know, waiting for therapy to come on. I'm the promoter of the show. Like I, it's the first show I've ever ran and it's sold out. They have a 10 strong film crew down filming it. You can actually buy this DVD anywhere now. It's Scopophobia. They did their, therapy did their first ever live DVD at the gig. I have that DVD yeah. also. <laughs> <laughs> and they name checked us on it and it was unbelievable. But there was just this moment whenever like, you know, I'm standing chatting to my mom and the band started and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go there and dance. I'm going to get stuck in. And, <laughs> and it was like, I mean, it was like being 13 again, you know, just jumping. And if you actually, it's funny now in the video, you can see me jumping around in this red t-shirt, like really <laughs> like with my long hair, as you remember, yeah. but just jumping around and loving it. And yeah, just, it was an amazing, for me personally, like that was a, a really, a really amazing moment. Um, just to have something that I'd been a fan of from when I was 13 mm-hmm. to then be involved in putting it on and then being able just to, to dance and enjoy it. It was just like, yeah, this is, well, the this parties really were a really important part of AU yeah. magazine. Um, and it wasn't just that. It was, you know, you, you would host like summer parties, like say at mm-hmm. the Island Arts Centre in Lisbon. There was like a pirate party there. And yeah, everyone dressed yeah. as a pirate. <laughs> I was there yeah. with my eye patch and stuff. Wow. Um, and you would release little mixtapes and things yeah. on CD because yeah. people burnt CDs back then. I don't know. You probably did a Spotify playlist yeah. about it now or something. Um, really special time for all these parties. And you'd have like live music and DJs mm-hmm. at them. Um, but also there was things like tying in with another really important part of that whole emerging scene, Glasgowberry Music mm-hmm. Festival. And actually I'm wearing a Glasgowberry t-shirt Props. right now. Sparing Mountains. Eagles Rock, actually. There's an eagle on the t-shirt. Yeah. And I remember actually quite quite distinctly, there was a year Glasgowberry took a break from being in a field and it was mm-hmm. in the cellar bar in Draperstown yeah. and you were down... I think you were up, had come on your motorbike or something. You were in your jacket, probably wearing like a, I don't know, a dog's dying hot cars t-shirt yeah, or something like yeah. that. And I think there's photos of me and you uh, like outside um, that my mum probably took on her phone Whoa. somewhere lingering in the in the dark end of my computer. I mean, Glasgowberry Festival as well. I mean, you would have been there probably every year like myself um, in those sort of gl- glory days. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we were there, weren't there the first year, but I think from the second year, I was there every year until it finished. And yeah, good friends with Patty and um, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, that was really a really special time as well. It was a really good, these things are like, they're just representations of moments in time and how healthy the scene was. And yeah, Glasgowberry was the same as AU. It was, it was a real representation and um, like a microcosm of everything like on the one day or on the two day. It's like, yeah, this is how things are. This is the, the cream. It was, yeah, it was amazing. So eventually the magazine did come to a close, mm-hmm. um, RIP. And what was the reason for that? Uh, we just, we lost our Arts Council funding in the in last year. Uh, desperate times with Arts Council funding in general now in Northern Ireland. Um, I mean, we're amidst cuts, but that was even pre all of these austerity sort of cuts. Um, was Arts Council funding your main source of funding actually at the time? Or were you getting some advertising? Advertising revenue well? and Arts Council funding. Yeah. So, And you did switch to like a free format for a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. For the last two years, we switched to free um, because it generated more advertising sales than... Yeah. than um, when we were just doing it paid for through stores. Uh, yeah, it was good. 
you must have learned a lot from your time in publishing because you, the, the bug has bitten you now you've moved <laughs> to Berlin. And we'll, we'll talk about your move to Berlin. You've started a new magazine mm-hmm. out there called mm-hmm. Lola. Mm-hmm. And I've got just got my new copy, my own personal copy. The design is great, as always. You have great taste in graphic designers. <laughs> I don't know if this the what the designer who did this one came came to you and offered free spreads free of charge. <laughs> this one definitely looks great. And you've started making an English language magazine in Berlin because I mean it's a multicultural city full of uh, people from all all, all 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 walks of life. And the magazine's called Lola. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about why you started the magazine and how it got its name. Okay, well, so the name Lola comes from the 1929 um, German film Der Blaue Engel, which is based on a 1904 uh, book of the same name. And um, it's the the character uh, Lola is played by Marlene Dietrich. She's a you know, internationally renowned actress. And this was her first role. It's the role that made her famous. It's the role that made her an international star. And Lola was an amoral cabaret singer and she was just amazing. And she was so amazing that this professor, he just fell in love with her and he left his job for her, you know, left his home for her, left everything, married her, joined the cabaret and just fell head over heels and did anything he could to be with her. And for me, that character of Lola, that's, that's Berlin. That's what we all do. Lots of people, including me, do for Berlin. We leave our, our homes, our jobs, our lives <laughs> yeah. and we go and we fall in love with Berlin and then we, you know... We, we go and we basically marry it. Um, so for me, that the concept of Lola, that, that, that represents Berlin. And there I thought it was named after your long-suffering dog, Lola. I mean, <laughs> the story I just told is the story, but the truth is that, yeah, it's named after my dog. <laughs> <laughs> shout out Lola, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, shout out to my dog. Um, but yeah, it was my friend, my friend Aisha. We were, because I, I had this concept for a magazine, it's going back like a year and a half that the idea came, you know, bef- before it came yeah. to, to reality. And it was last summer and I was sitting having um, lunch with my friend Aisha, who's a photographer. And I was, you know, I've been talking about starting this magazine and, you know, I've been working the titles over my head. And I wanted to come up with a title that that um, was related to and referenced Berlin, but didn't have Berlin in the title. I just wanted something yeah. to be that developed its own personality and people put their own meaning onto. And then Aisha was just like, well, what's your dog called? I was like, it's Lola. And she's like, why, why don't you call it Lola? And I was like, that's crazy. And then when I thought about it, I actually know it. It's a really nice name. It's and a good logo. And there's a really logo. interesting side story that you yeah. can pretend that it's about. Exactly. And I didn't even know about the side story. It was my, one of my best friends, Alison, her husband, Michael, was who's a screenwriter and he's German. And he's like, yeah, Lola's a really, it's a really clever name for, for a magazine. And he's like, told me about the character Lola and he told me about the film prize being called the Lola and Ron Lola Ron and he's like really clever and I was like you, you know it's just my dog's name and he's like no <laughs> and he thought I had these multi-layered meanings and I was Brilliant. like no well um, yeah. I saw on um, social media recently that you were actually speaking on German TV mm. was this what was that about um, being Northern Irish being Northern Irish of course but you do very well yeah uh, are you trying <laughs> and did you you did you just tell them the very convoluted story about the name behind the magazine? No, I wasn't talking about the magazine with them. Um, just talking about Northern Ireland playing Germany in the football. Oh, was, how boring! Was, yeah. <laughs> well, we kind of did well, didn't we? We nearly did well. We did. We did. Okay. We did. Um, how is life in Berlin? I mean, you must be enjoying it. You've stayed, but you you said that you sort of left your left your wife to, to move to Berlin. But I I feel like you're still cheating on Berlin because you come over to Belfast every so often. Yeah, yeah. I initially went to Berlin for a career break for two months. That was my my initial plan. Uh-huh. And then after the first month, I luckily find my own apartment in a really great location, which I didn't realize at the time, but is really really difficult and quite rare to get your own contract in an apartment, especially after that time. Um, 
So I was like given the opportunity where I could stay and I made the decision that I would stay and that I wasn't going to come back to Belfast to live. So then I had to phone up my job and be like, career break, um, career broken, I'm not coming back. <laughs> yeah, so then I, I came back. And, it's not uh, me, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I, yeah, I came back and just rented a van, me and my best friend then put all my belongings and everything into the van along with my dog. Rented a van, big story, but yeah, drove down through Ireland, got the ferry from Dublin to Cherbourg and then drove through France, Belgium, uh, into Germany and then, yeah, across to Berlin. Yeah. And is there a little network of um, ex-Belfast people building up in Berlin at the minute? Yeah, I mean, it is increasing and I do I do keep bumping into a few more as time goes on. Um, but yeah, my good friend Stu Bell uh, that we've talked about, he's there. He, he was there before me. One of the big reasons why I ended up in Berlin as well. Yeah. And then my friends Jack and Emma from Belfast, my friend Ben is also from, from Belfast. And yeah, they're coming. And are you now um, getting better with your German? Because I know you actually put a lot of effort in. Well, that was it. Well, the first thing I did whenever I got there. I mean, I arrived on the Monday and on the Tuesday, I started language class um, straight away. Um, and that was my plan to go there and do the language course for two months. And then, yeah, I spent I spent eight months solid doing intensive language courses. Um, yeah, that's so all I did. You, I you did. are good now. Yeah, I can Deutschplagen. But hey. I did. <laughs> and I mean, and this is the song for me that kind of expresses, I mean, I most associate with my move to Berlin and my decision to be there. Uh, I kind of fell in love with the song a few years ago. And then um, it's the, the, this is the day. And it has this wonderful chorus. This is the day your life will surely change. This is the day when things fall into place. And I loved it. So that's a really nice lyric. Um, and then it was the day that I decided and phoned up uh my work and said I wasn't coming back. I was having a drink with my friend Oshin. He was staying in Berlin at the time and we were in a bar called Das Gift and it was just me and Oshin and there were three other people at the table beside us and the barman, that was it. And then this song came on the radio. I've never heard it in the radio. I've never heard it out before and I was like, wow, this is the day. And I was like, it just made me feel like, yeah, this is the day, you know, like I made the right decision, <laughs> did the right thing. And then when I looked across the, the, the bar, um, the other three people in the bar, I was like, that guy looks a lot like Michael Stipe. And I was like, that is, that is Michael Stipe. And I looked and I, yeah, it was Michael Stipe. He was just sitting right from, from where we are to now. <laughs> and I was like, oh, if it's good for Michael Stipe, if it's good enough for Michael Stipe, it's good enough for yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs>
So that was the the and this is the day yeah. um, sort of uh, a, a momentous song for you to make it feel like you you had made the right decision to leave yeah. Belfast. You know, what, you never sometimes think like if you've a soundtrack to your, to a film of your life, and you know, do you ever get songs like that where you're you just, total John Cusack high fidelity, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. You know, you just think that's the exit scene or something. You know, like that's just that's uh, some sort of scene. That's the end credits. You know. Well, this actually, you know, a song that I think is that song for loads of people for loads of different reasons and one one of my friends in particular i think this is like his like soundtrack to his life song mm-hmm. is this must be the place by talking heads Ryan McGrody from Beauty Sleep. Hi, Ryan. Uh, and he'll he'll always put this on at parties. And I think it's like, you know, his, like, just, it's his song. You know, I just associate it with yeah. him. But I know that it's in that movie. Is it in Wall Street? I'm not sure. Um, but it's also, it, This Must Be The Place is, is also a film with Sean Penn. It's a really great movie, actually. Where, yes. Where he plays the Robert Smith-style character who's going to, like, avenge his father's death. Great film. It's really cinematic in quality, mm-hmm. actually. Just it's sort of slow beat. Um, and you, your eyes lit up when I said that. Is this, is this song mean something to you, too? Yeah, this was actually the first song I ever DJed in Berlin um, the first Whoa. song I ever played and it's also a song I associate with Berlin because it's all yeah it's, it's about home and um, this might sound cheesy but Berlin is probably the first place where I've lived where I really felt like home and I felt like it is it is home so for me this song represents home and, and Berlin too well you know we're in my home we're talking about your home uh, let's play some Talking Heads started working for an online magazine in Berlin and then it was during that time when I was thinking what am I gonna you know I was thinking about what I'm gonna do in Berlin for the future you know I'd been really focused on on the German studies and then as that I was thinking that was gonna be coming to an end and I always obviously talked about magazines and my then girlfriend was like why would you never think about starting another magazine and I was like no that's crazy why would I do that and then it's like once the idea was in my head I thought yeah actually and uh, you know I'd, I'd already been having an idea because Part of one of the things I really love to do and I'm really passionate about is promoting culture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something I, I I really love doing and promoting what what um what I, I'm experiencing and what I'm involved in. Sure. And I and I had this idea I've been working on for this idea of an immigrant's love. This was the idea for for I was going to do a blog with this title, and it comes from a journalist called David Carr, and he was a journalist for the New York Times, and um he came to the New York Times late in his career, right? And he said it gave him an immigrant's love of the place. <laughs> like and before this, you know, before he got to New York Times, he'd been a drug addict. He'd been a single dad that raised two girls by himself. He'd had a pretty tough time, and 
he came to it from a different place and he said mm. that it gave him this this immigrant's love and I just thought it was a really lovely turn of phrase and I just thought yeah it's like for him he felt differently about the paper than say somebody who you know just went there straight from university or you know took a regular route to get there yeah. they can't take it for granted but for him like he had this other love of it and that phrase just really resonated with me and then I kind of was like well that's, that's kind of how I felt about Berlin you know obviously came from a different place and it gave me this this different this different love obviously people from Berlin who grew up there they have a love for the city too. Yeah. But when you come from Belfast or somewhere else and things are really different here and you notice those differences a bit more, then it gives you this real, it gives me a really strong love and appreciation of it. So I'd been formatting with this idea and then the idea by starting a magazine and I was like, okay, you know, then it started to just coalesce and I was like, actually, you know, that idea that I was thinking about for the blog, this immigrants love, this this concept that I'm, it's really as a concept that I'm trying to to express and articulate it's like, well, actually, that would be that would be best done through through a magazine, and then it's like, yep, this is how it would be, and then yeah. So I had some friends who were working with me at the time as well were like, yeah, they they yeah loved the idea and also had the same idea, and that's kind of how it happened. It's again like this sort of ball of energy that mm-hmm. where you picks up a little bit more energy the more people you talk to yeah. about it and. And then the more people who say, oh, that's a good idea. You're like, oh, yeah, that is a good idea. I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, some of the people that have worked on this magazine and on this first issue, like I, I, I couldn't say, you know, express enough gratitude or thanks or or give them enough credit for their work. I mean, the cover photography by Robert Rieger is it's, stunning. It's so good. Um, just give like our listeners a little bit of a maybe quick overview of sort of what's in the first issue and what yeah. like you're going to be covering in this because it's sort of like arts culture. Yeah, and... well, I can give you like the, the idea behind the magazine is it's basically a celebration of the people and stories that make Berlin so special. I mean, Berlin is a special city and it's a special place and it's the people really that, that make that happen. So what we do is we cover what I like to call cultural contributors. So that's people who can contribute to the cultural enrichment environment of Berlin. And that can be anybody from musicians, filmmakers, um, artists, but also people like, we've got a good feature on Herbert Schmidt, who is uh, a guy that plays Frisbee in the park every single day and has done it for 10 years. You go to the park, three o'clock, Gerlitzer Park every day. There he is playing Frisbee. He's an attraction. People watch him. And I feel like he contributes real culture and real value to mm. the city. So we, we know we cover people like that as well. So it's like, if you contribute culturally to the city, yeah, we want to we want to feature you, and that's that's the magazine's ethos. That's amazing. His story, um, it's sort of like a living sculpture in mm. a way, right? He probably has his own pokey stop. Actually, maybe <laughs> he stopped playing frisbee now that Pokemon goes yeah. out. He's probably walking around and trying other things. <laughs> yeah, well, so the first cover story of the magazine is with a guy called Mark Reader, and Mark Reader for me represents um this immigrant love of Berlin and this idea of Berlin that we're trying to communicate with with Lola. Uh, there's a film called B-Movie, Lost and Sound in West Berlin, which is all actually the story about Mark. He uh, he went to, to Germany in 1978 and then he paid a visit to Berlin and fell in love with it and never left. And he's been there <laughs> for 38 years. So this documentary is kind of like the story of his life, so to speak. He was there, you know, and it's from 1979 to 1989 before the wall came down. And he got involved in the music scene, ended mm-hmm. up managing a band. And it's kind of like, it's all this rare footage from that time. And it's the story of his life. And for me, he really represents this whole idea of moving to Berlin, falling in love with it and falling in love with the place. So that's why he's our first cover star. And this track, um, it's called You Need the Drugs and it's by Westbam. And it is one of the main songs in the movie. And yeah, it's just a really, really wonderful song. Well, let's hear a little bit of it. Some Sunday morning see you. Picking up the fun, to 
Breaking down the last time Before the credits run And traffic isn't moving or it's Moving awful slow To the sound of you complaining We got nowhere left to go You need a drug To make the stars come down You need a drug To make you shine You need the pills To take you home again Don't be so la-dee-da So la-dee-da You need the drugs Yeah and so, so that's what we do and then the the new website's going to be launching this week and it's going to do the same thing with features but then it also has a curated feed so we'll be doing recommendations for things to do places to go and um, yeah what to be at in Berlin along with these features I'm flicking through the magazine mm-hmm. here and uh, one of the headlines of an article is no fear <laughs> and that's clearly what you have in bright bold red call uh, tops letters because Print's meant to be dying out, Mm -hmm. right? And the web is awash with recommendations, sites and things. Like, how does one even like come up with a unique selling point that's going to drive traffic? And then then it's all about getting traffic Mm -hmm. and ad revenue and all this and advertorial. Like, well, what's what's your vision of what makes Lola that little bit different from other outlets and what's going to make people like go to the website? Well, I suppose what I really want Lola to do is to become on the highest level to become a brand that represents Berlin in English because that's that's the, the language. I mean, there's lots of people that come to Berlin that don't speak good German yet. So mm-hmm. I kind of always want to tell the stories that are being told in German, tell them in English, you know. And also it's the majority of people's second language if it's not their first. So it's the language people communicate in. So I want Lola to become the magazine that represents Berlin, that people look at and go, they, they understand that, you know, that's what Berlin is about and that we represent the, the life that, that is happening there right now and celebrate it. And I don't feel like there is an outlet in Berlin that does that at the moment. And as with the online, I don't feel like there's a really good outlet that a really good singular source that you can go to, that you can trust, that you know that what they're talking about or what mm. they're promoting is is genuinely really good. And it's just funny that there seems to be at the moment there was just like a gap in the in the market that it this this didn't exist. And um I think it's kind of because in Berlin actually and in Germany, print is still a really big thing. And the main sources of information about going out and so on are magazines Tip and Zitty. And they're both in German and they're both print and they don't really care about online. And it's kind of strange then that yeah. there's just nobody has done this yet. It seems really natural and obvious. And you're uh-huh. like, oh, somebody should be doing this. But it's so you, not. you're just going to get them to email through all the listings, right? And you'll translate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, we want to provide that, yeah, good trusted point for, for well, this. You're right. That, that word trust is really important. It's all right now. It is all about a trusted source of mm-hmm. information because there's so much data out there, so much aggregated content. And what a lot of people would argue is like soulless content and mm-hmm. that uh, how do you how do you even trust a user review? I really get what you mean when you, you want this to be a trusted magazine. Um, and that, that's that's what all our favorite media forms are. Yeah. I know listen, people listen to the jewel case because they try. 
Yeah, absolutely. They trust that they're going to get those really good stories, yeah. right? An important part of the AU experience was the event culture. Mm-hmm. Is Lulu going to have a similar pop gig and DJ night associated events? Yeah, that's that is that's the plan. I mean, we did our launch party. We did two launch parties, one a press launch and then an amazing venue called Blog Fabrique, which is a collection of media outlets. Um in the one building and uh, yeah, people pay their rent by submitting articles to a magazine called Daily Bread. And then they also work with an agency. It's it's a really amazing space. We did a launch there and then we did our after party in Loftus Hall. We actually had our after party booked for a venue called The Basement, which held 150 people. And it was so popular online and there's so much interest in the launch that the owner of the venue also owned another venue and he said, we have to move it. Um, <laughs> it's too big. So we had to move to the Loftus Hall and yeah, I was completely blown away. Maybe like three, four hundred people at the launch party. Venus Dupree flew her in from Belfast. She DJed the launch party. She completely smashed it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was just an amazing experience. There were so many great people there, so many friendly faces and it was class. So yeah, we're going to do that. Every time we do a new issue, we'll do a new, another party. But then I'm also looking into doing other parties as well. You know me, I love doing parties. That, I mean, that's your thing. That yeah. You're good at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, those AU basement parties, they were... So they were brilliant. They, they were some of the best parties of my life. And I mean, I think probably, I don't want to be too like overblown about it, but I think they're probably some of the best parties that Belfast has seen and probably will see there. They were. I think, you know, whatever way it worked out, I missed loads of them. I was away whenever certain ones were on. I was at other things. Um, I think I only managed to make it to one. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was great. It was one of the sort of later ones. Um, and then you you know you moved premises and then there was a couple after that but they were yeah. never as good as the original basement parties right no, those basement parties were just crazy in a way you know we're right on Barbary Place yeah we open at midnight you know we open the door you're full up by like one o'clock you close the door and then you can't hear anything from the street but downstairs there's like 200 people with a 2k sound rig dancing and having a great time to like five in the morning it was just it's how Belfast should be it's how things should be it shouldn't be this oh my god we did a party at five in the morning I mean that should be the norm it's kind of it's totally weird here like last night not to rant about it, but last night... No, the please cl- do, because, I mean, we talked about this multiple times Yeah, the, la- the years. Yeah, last night the club finished at 20 past one, and you're sent home, you're like, what is going on here? You mm. know, it decreases the revenue potential for bars, it decreases the fun people can have, you know, it's just, it's completely weird to me. It was completely weird to me when I lived here, and it's even weirder to me now that I live in Berlin and it's different there, you know. And it also has led to this culture um, in Northern Ireland and in wider, wider in Britain that... Uh, people compact their night into such a short space of time and then they overdo it mm-hmm. and then you end up yeah. with people falling out of the nightclub at half one or two yeah. and really worse for wear. Whereas I know I know that the, the powers that be are thinking that by closing it early is actually making things safer. But if the night was spread out more, we wouldn't have the crazy uh over drinking that people do by yeah. like saying, oh the bar's gonna close so I need to get 10 drinks yeah. in. Um, and it's a really childish way people spend their nights because we are treated like children. Yeah, but I do the exact same thing. I'm like, oh, the bar's going to close. I'd better get two or three drinks, right? So you're getting your multiple drinks when the bar's closing, right? So then you consume them and then they kick you out shortly after. So you go to the street at the most drunk you can be because you drank the most. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And everybody doesn't, oh, the bar's going to close. Let's rush for the bar. And then you're kicked out. And everybody said, you know, like, it's really actually completely insane when you think about it. When you don't have this pressure of the night ending, then you just pace yourself a lot more. Yeah. And, 
Yeah. Anyway, I don't, I don't want to rag on, 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 on Belfast, but to go back then, that's why these parties were so special. And that's why like these after hours parties in Belfast, when they happened, they were, they were different and they, they provided something different and they provided an experience. They were totally safe, totally fun. Everybody had a great time. I mean, Jimmy Devlin, he would come to them as well. The used to be the producer, Radio One and band yeah. manager. Shout out Jimmy. Shout out to Jimmy. But he was like, he used to come to them all the time. And he's like, I really love it here. He says it's kind of like New York or something like that. It's, you know, it's a really good atmosphere, good people, good vibe. He loved it. And that really meant a lot to me back then. Cause that's kind of what you want to do. You want to create this, this, atmos- sure. this atmosphere. And they, yeah, they just felt like, like they had it. And there was no trouble at any of them ever. You know, we did quite a few of them. And there was never, never a single piece of trouble. We'll maybe finish the show on a song that was pretty key to that party but just to wrap up before just we like, played so little music in this I, I know it just just <laughs> chat for ages we'll come back to that in a wee second before 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 we finish like I want to get a quick update on where you're at in terms of your music taste now yeah. you've moved to Berlin what are you sort of playing when you're playing out there compared to what you're playing when you come back to uh-huh. Northern Ireland to DJ well when I'm there I mean I really like to play a lot of post-punk and disco punk music that's what I'm playing a lot of at the moment that's Great. my passion I mean I'm really madly into into um post-punk and, and disco punk gang of four are the quintessential post-punk band and i just remember the first time i heard them and the first time i heard damaged goods the actual sonic sound of it just literally just made me excited straight away mm-hmm. and i just loved it I don't know what it is about the sharp guitars, the bass line, you know, the, the skippy drums. It was just something about it that I was like, I love it. So anything that is along that vein, then uh, yeah, I love it. So I've been playing, I've been DJing now, I've been playing uh, a lot more of that kind of stuff, but also in love with like lots of electronica. I mean, still play you know, like bits of techno or house or, or disco. Um, yeah, whatever I can get away with. It's a really different DJing in Berlin because people uh, have an appetite for hearing stuff they haven't heard before or, yeah. or, you know, stuff that's more left of center. Whereas in Belfast, the appetite is people want to hear stuff that they have heard before mm-hmm. and you have to push them as far as you can to stuff they haven't heard before and it's like a different approach in Berlin. But I still love, I come back here and I still love playing, you know, like playing the big room in libraries, playing banging sets and having a good time. So, I mean, if people want to hear you DJ in Belfast, it's sort of monthly yeah. um, and it's in laveries yeah. in the main room uh, or the ballroom, whatever they call it nowadays. Yeah. I feel too old for it. <laughs> I know I'm not too old for it. I feel too old for it. Um, and that's sort, sort of every month. Yeah. yeah. And is there a regular place that you DJ if you if anyone's over in Berlin that, to check out where you're DJing? No, I don't have any like residencies. I always play in a place, Marie Antoinette. I play there quite a lot. Um, but if you check my SoundCloud forward slash Johnny Tiernan, then there's some mixes on there and then dates. oh yeah do you have like twitter and instagram people can can look up if they want yeah, to follow johnny, you yeah johnny johnny tiernan that's it with no h g o w m y t i e r n a n instagram soundcloud facebook let's be friends just everywhere <laughs> johnny it's been really lovely catching up with you and uh, i'm glad to finally welcome you into my home and this you can check out all the plants maybe we'll work on your shot a little bit more 
after we turn the for it. turn the recording off. Have a great time with the the rest of your time in Belfast, and Thank uh, you, John. and maybe you'll get out uh, and about a bit more in Lisbon, and hopefully I'll get over to see you in Berlin sometime soon. Anytime you That'll want, you're more than welcome. Well, you have been listening to the Jewel Case. Uh, this has been me, John Darcy, with publisher, DJ, entrepreneur, wild man, Johnny Tiernan. <laughs> And uh, we'll finish the show with a track that sort of sums up a, a, a little era uh, in Belfast and Northern Ireland. At a certain time, those AU basement parties. Johnny, tell the story of this song at the basement party. Oh, well, this is the last song that they ever played at the basement party, our last ever basement party. And it's uh, And So Watch You From Afar. And before they played this gig, because they're friends, they were friends of the magazine. We'd, we'd been featuring them for, for years, like before, you know, they, anybody knew who they were really. We did like the first thing we wrote about like five lines on them, and eventually we did two cover stories with them. Yeah. And um, yeah, they were great, and they're really. You named the, them song of AU's lifetime at one stage, right? Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. I mean, they're just like they were just one of our favorite bands. They're just phenomenal as well, and uh, they the. So I asked them to do one of these basement shows, and they said yes. But the gig before this they did was in the Mandela Hall for a thousand people and the gig they were doing after this was for the uh, Ulster Hall which was for like 1850 people or something and in between these two shows they're doing our basement which is like 200 people um, so obviously word got around that everyone wanted to come so at 12 o'clock you know people are already queuing outside the door it's like crazy we're not meant to be doing these parties so open the door try and get the people in as quickly as possible like we're pretty much sold out in no time I'm like oh man this is this is crazy I close the door and then shortly later, there's a knock on the door and I open it to say, you know, you can't come in. And I open the door and there's a, a bunch of policemen standing at the door. And I was like, uh, hi. And they're like, can we come in? And I said, no, it's a private party. And they said, well, we've got building control from the council here, so you have to let us in. And I was like, okay, come in. <laughs> so then they all come in and they're like, what's going on here? And I'm like, oh, we're just having a party, you know. And they said, are you charging people in? And I'm like, no, no, no. And then they lifted up our, our ticker that counted the number of people that are in. And they're like, is this the number of people that are in? And I was like, uh, yeah. And they're like, are you charging these people in? I'm like, no. And like, do you want us to ask them? And I'm like, okay, fine. We asked for a donation. And then they're like, okay, we're going to have a chat and we're going to take a look around. So I took them downstairs and it was like, yeah, here's where the bands play. You know, here's where people smoke. And basically you're taking them into a, an underground basement that was filled with 200 people. <laughs> that shouldn't be there. But I'm trying to play it off. be really cool. And I took them back upstairs and they were like, um, we can't let this carry on but we also can't shut it down because they didn't, they don't have the authority because we're not really, you know, at that time breaking any laws. So they're like, look, you know, we can't shut it down, but what we will do is if you don't stop, then they'll contact the fire authority and then the fire authority will come down to clear the fire risk and then it'll be shut down. And in my head, I'm just thinking like the band haven't even played yet. We really need the band to play. So I was like, um, well, tell you what, how about like you let us run till two o'clock and, then I, I I shut it down. Then they're just like, "What?" I'm like, "Yeah, just let us run till till two, and then I'll shut it down." <laughs> they're like, uh, "Tell you what, we'll be back at half one." I'm like, "Aye, that's good." And then today the, they left, and we we went. I went downstairs and said the the band. I'm like, "Okay, we're gonna get shut down by the police. We need to get on stage now. Play this set. This is the last set. This is the last party. This is gonna do it." So they took the stage and I announced. I'm like, "Everybody, this is this is the last day you show. This is the last a basement party that's gonna be. We're gonna be shut down by the police." So. Let's, you know, let's make it a good one. And yeah, the band played and it was just unreal. People were genuinely hanging from the ceiling. Like yeah, I've from, seen the photos. Yeah, <laughs> people were hanging from the ceiling. It was just so intense. And I'm at the back of the stage. I'm looking, like, I'm looking at my watch and I'm thinking like, all right, the, you know, the police are going to come soon. So I get a tap on the shoulder and it's like, yeah, the police are here. So I said to Rory, I was like, Rory, the police are here, but I like really want to, 
like play one song I you know, really want to hear and set, set guitars to kill. It's an anthem we've been playing it in gigantic loads. It's, you know, it is, you know, the big anthem, the big AU anthem as well. Um, and I was like, oh, he said, okay, we'll play it. And I went to the back of the room and the police were like, like, let's shut this down now. And I was like, oh, you know. One more tune. I was like, let us, let us play one more tune. And they're like, <laughs> uh, no, and I said, look, tell you what, if you let us play this one song, I'll get on the mic and I'll announce and I'll let, you know, tell everybody it's over you know, and we can leave. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, just let us play one more song. And all the lines are like, okay, right. So are you going to stand here and, you know, for, for the duration of the song? And I was like, no, I'm going to go down the front and dance. <laughs> He's like, okay then. And I went, all right. <laughs> Ran to the front. And then, yeah, it was just this most insane experience, you know, buck fast everywhere. People crowd surfing. Like, yeah, it was an amazing, yeah, visceral performance. Um, and then afterwards, yeah, it was just like, thanks very much big round of applause to the police for letting us finish that last song and everybody's like yo and, <laughs> <laughs> and they were really cool about it and it was really funny at the end you know Jimmy went up to the to the police and we're like yeah I just wanted to say thanks for letting finish that song and you know we just wanted to say and the police were like well we're not shutting the party down it's the council so then Jimmy went over to the council and was like yeah you know cool just wanted to say thanks for letting the party run a bit and the council were like no we didn't shut it down it was the police and nobody wanted to take responsibility uh, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for ending the party um yeah, and it was just, yeah. Then we all filed out and that was it. It was the end of the basement parties on a high. Wow, what a story, uh, <laughs> Johnny. It's been a pleasure. Uh, let's let's relive that moment now. This is I'm Sorry Watch You From Afar, Set Guitars to Kill. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week on The Jewel Case. Night, night. Night, night.